We're at uh, 5.13 in Joshua. Joshua 5.13, as they're about to go to Jericho. Camped in Gilgal at the, on the outskirts of Jericho, having just crossed the Jordan River. And God is going to fulfill his promises to his people as they enter the promised land. Uh, many of you might... Well, many of you will know the name George Mueller. Know a little bit about George Mueller, maybe. Maybe you know a lot about George Mueller. Uh, living at late 1800s, uh, well, he was in his 90s in the 1800s. He was born right at the beginning of the 19th century in England. He ran an orphanage, and this is just a testimony when someone asks him you've always uh, found the Lord uh, questioned him you have always found the Lord faithful to his promise and here's what he says always he has never failed me for nearly 70 years every need in connection with the work has been supplied the orphans from the first until now have numbered 9,500 but they have never wanted a meal, never. Hundreds of times we have commenced the day without a penny in hand, but our Heavenly Father has sent supplies by the moment they were actually required. There never was a time when there was no wholesome meal. During all these years, I have been enabled to trust in God and the living God and Him alone. 1,400,000 pounds have been sent to me in answer to prayer, we have wanted as much as 50000 in a year, and it has all come by the time it has been really needed. Living by faith. Never ask for anything except from the Lord. Uh, God is faithful. Mueller is an uh, indicting or a convicting uh, example of a, someone who lives by faith. Here... God is going to uh, fulfill the promise that he gave to Abraham in Genesis 15, where it says, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river Euphrates. And so in this, uh, in this episode here, the beginning of the conquering conquest of the land of Canaan, um, one of my commentators entitled it, Joshua did not fight the battle of Jericho. Israel is, the Israelite army is essentially passive other than having to walk around the city a number of times, 13 times in a week. Uh, uh, God fights the battle until the very end when they go in and accomplish the conquest of Jericho. So let's read, we're at uh, 513, Uh, the commander of the Lord's army arrives. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come, and Joshua 
now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals for your feet, from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. So they camped at Gilgal, um, heading to Jericho. Uh, they're healing from, their, from the uh, mass circumcision of the people, uh, surveying the land. Joshua is uh, preparing for battle, and he meets this man, uh, maybe a human, maybe not. You know, you remember uh, as Corey preached through Genesis, Abram had the three visitors uh, uh, three men visited Abram. We end up, by the time the story's over, it's the Lord and two angels. And J- Jacob wrestles with a man uh, at the Jabbok. And Jacob says himself, I have seen God face to face as he wrestled. So it doesn't necessarily, is it a human man, but this man who meets them, who is he? Uh, well, his sword is drawn. He's sort of in a, Military stance. Uh, if we numbers twenty two, uh, if you remember the story of Balaam, the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a sword drawn in his hand. The same kind of language, uh, and so that was the angel of the Lord who passed who, who passed before Balaam and the donkey. So by inference, we can also say this is God. Take your shoes off, Joshua, which is the very same language that God said to Moses in the burning bush. So we, by inference, we're going to say this is angel of the Lord. This is God. Uh, uh, and so it's safe to assume this man is the angel of the Lord. Then who is the angel of the Lord? Uh, for sure it's God. For sure he is God. We can go to Judges and Manoah and his wife saw the angel of the Lord and uh, we have seen God say to themselves, we have seen God. Uh, Here the angel of the Lord evokes worship as he calls uh, Joshua to um, take his sandals off because the ground is holy. Some would say this is the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God. Um, Calvin says this, Let us inquire who this angel was. The ancient teachers of the church have rightly understood it to be the eternal Son of God in respect to his office as mediator. So many would say the angel of the Lord is a pre-incarnate Christ. I don't know that we can know for sure, but uh, that's the inference there is, you work through this. Um, that he, he worshipped him, and all the other times where we see something like that, yeah, an angel appears, they fall and they worship. What happens? No, yeah, don't worship it. That didn't happen. That didn't happen. Yes, so we know it's God for sure. Yes, it is indeed divine. Yes, thank you. That is good. That's a good addition. Um, I, I think it's interesting here where uh, Joshua asks their uh, interesting. I don't know if we study the Bible for interesting stuff, do we? I mean, but are you for us or are you for our adversaries? And he says, no. 
something lost in the translation there somehow. But the point is what he says. No, but, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. Um, fulfillment again of God's promise in Exodus 23. In Exodus 23, Behold, I send an angel before you on the way and to bring you to the place that I prepared. Uh, and God says through Moses to the people, pay careful attention to this angel. Obey his voice. Do not rebel against him. Carefully obey his voice. And now this angel, now I have come. Here's the fulfillment of Exodus 23. Uh, that would be verses 20 through 24 if you want to write it down for a reference. And he is uh, the he's come to lead Israel into the land, supported by the army. He's the army of God. He's over the uh, he's the commander of the army of God. The uh, the commander of the hosts of God. All the angels of God is, are part of this army. Uh, and so. He says, now I've come. We're going in. It's time. Verse 1 is now parentheses in the story. Or I put it as a parentheses. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. Uh, he said, Joshua, take in, in verse 15, take your sandals off. And then in verse 2... And the Lord said to Joshua, I've given Jericho into your hand. That's the continuing story. But in the middle here, we get this picture to, uh, uh, of, of what's going on in Jericho as they're about to approach. And uh, they are sealed up tight. They're shut up inside and out, or they're uh, shut up and they're shut up is how the literal Hebrew would be. It, it's They're shut tight from... Uh, this approaching army, they've heard about, remember the story of Rahab, they've heard about what God has done in delivering them from Egypt. Uh, and so they are uh, shut up, secure, impregnable uh, in a sense. They're up on the hill, it's on the tail. They're up, coming up from the Jordan River up to uh, Jericho. And so A.W. Pink says, man's extremity is God's opportunity. Uh, they are shut up tight. There's no real human uh, way, uh, at least in uh, human imagining, that they can take this city. But uh, strategically, it seems impossible. But the Lord and his army are fighting for them. And so verses 2 through 5. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand. Notice that's not future. That is, it's, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus you shall do it for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times. And the priests shall blow the trumpets, and when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall 
shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So the commander commands. Here's first things first. Uh, I've given Jericho into your hand. That's a done deal. Uh, and then this strange strategy to take the city. We know the story, or many of, most of you will know the story. March around once a day for six days. The fighting men are leading. Then come seven priests with seven trumpets. Then the Ark of the Covenant. Then the rear guard. Uh, Greg Beale says this is a formation that um, the folks in Jericho would have recognized as a a, a military, a battle configuration, the way the Egyptians would line themselves up. And the Egyptians have been dominant in this land many years during and before these times. Uh, And so the Jericho residents understand, they recognize this advancement, the ark is mentioned ten times in chapter six. Was the was the symbolism of the ark? The presence of God. God is with them. Ten times the ark is mentioned. Uh, just to 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 see the text uh, and His presence is what makes all the difference in the world between Egypt's army and the army uh, of Israel. On the seventh day, they go around seven times. You can see all the sevens that tend to be very symbolic to the Hebrew people, the Jewish people in all of Scripture, actually. Seven priests, seven trumpets, uh, seven days, seven times around, uh, seven days of creation, the same type of uh, completion, uh, pointing to a complete the completion, I have given Jericho into your hand. The battle's done. And so you have all of these pictures of, uh, of God at work for, these, uh, for the uh, confirmation for Israel. Uh, and this seven-day event, the walls of Jericho will fall down, verse 5 and Verse 20, we'll see that they do fall down. After a long blast on the trumpets and a loud shout, the wall will fall down and the people will go in through the broken wall. Good. Verse 6. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, go forward, march around the city and let the armed men pass on before the ark of the Lord. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns, ram's horns before the Lord went forward blowing the trumpets with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, following them. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the Ark while the trumpets blew continually. So the trumpets are going constantly. 
uh, verse 10, But Joshua commanded the people, You shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. Um, so he sets in motion the plan according to the Lord, the, the uh, angel of the Lord, armed men are in front, again, the, the, the formation. Verse 10, you, you kind of lose, uh, in our translation, you kind of lose the strength of, you have three no's in that passage. So it's, let me read it in the NIV, just because the NIV stresses the way the original is. Here's what the NIV says, but Joshua commanded the people, do not give a war cry. Do not raise your voices. Do not say a word. So there's three no. No, 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 Joshua. Everybody's going to be quiet. Now, they're, they're making the racket with the trumpets, blowing continually, but no one is to say a word for these until God says, okay, until Joshua gives the signal. So he calls verse 11. So he calls... Uh, the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about it once. And they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord, and the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of the ram's horns before the ark of the Lord walked on, and they blew the trumpets continually. And the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day they marched around, around the city once and returned into the camp, and so they did for six days. That's what we know of the first six days of the battle. They marched around blowing the horn, everyone quiet, back to camp. Then verse 15 starts the final day, the fateful day, the day of the end for Jericho. On the seventh day, they arose early at the dawn of the day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And if we were just following the story, we jumped to verse 20. And the people, so the people shouted. But there's another parenthesis in here, verses 15, 16, and 17. Or I'm, uh, 17, 18, and 19, I'm sorry. Uh, there's another delay. So look at verse 16. At the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. You expect verse 20 to be next, so the people shouted. Joshua said, shout, shout. But we have verse 17, 18, and 19 to kind of stop the flow of the narrative. And the city, verse 17, and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her and her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, 
lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So Joshua tells them, shout. And then the author stops and says, here's instructions for when you take this city. Some very, very important instructions um, inserted here before the assault. What Joshua says is more important than Jericho's wall falling down, according to Dale Ralph Davis. Inserting these instructions here highlight the priority of obedience to God's command over the victory in itself. More important is obeying God's commands than winning the victory. Right? And so we have some specific instructions. These are very, these are consequential instructions. Deeply consequential instructions for Israel to learn about their God. What does it mean that they were devoted to the Lord for destruction? What is, hmm? They're to be killed. Annihilated. Okay, they were, that was, yes, so they were vile people. Huh? Vessels of wrath. Vessels of wrath. Okay, that's, yes. But to be devoted, if you have New American, it says a ban. Doesn't it call it a van, ban? What does yours say there? You've got the real Bible there, Warren. Oh, devoted to destruction. So the New American calls it a ban uh, on them. <laughs> okay. Put under a ban for annihilation. Uh We'll see more cities put under the ban for annihilation. The next city, AI, is put under ban for Makeda, uh Hazor. Uh, ordinarily, under the ban, everything living was killed. First uh, Samuel 15, King Saul is, is early on in his ministry, if you will, as a king. Now go and strike Amalek. This is instructions to, uh, from Samuel to Saul. Go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Um, is that, do you have a problem? No, no, many people have a problem with God commanding men, women, boys and girls, ox, donkeys, camels, just wipe them all, just level everything alive. Make sure nothing is left alive. Okay, don't understand the animals.
So the animals were defiled too? Yes. Well, um, yes. Uh, here's what one of the commentators said. This is holy war language. This is an unholy people. Uh, a holy war language, he says, in which unholy things are destroyed as a sacrifice to the Lord. Devoted to destruction as a sacrifice to the Lord. Yes? Well, I'm, I don't think it makes a difference just trying to understand the flow of the path. Well, if you go back to 16, as Joshua is speaking, shout for the Lord has given you the city, and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted. Uh, I would say that's a continuing quote from Joshua, but of course it's come straight from God. God is directing. God is directing, yes. This is, this is warning them, do not take any booty. Do not take anything from the city. Burn it all, kill it all. And they will burn the city. Yeah. Yeah. All devoted, yes. But this is really an ethical dilemma. We we already have one who at least is admitting, I don't know why the animals have to be killed. <laughs> you know, I mean, we got, more, we got more ethical dilemmas coming up through this conquest. But, uh, I, I mean, really just to think through it, uh, to think about it, uh, this is what uh, my last class in seminary, and remember my seminary education was bad. It wasn't really good. And so uh, I took a last class, and they let, because I was about to graduate, they let me substitute a philosophy class with the problem of evil. And I was excited for that class. And uh, the, the problem of evil, evil theologically is called a theodicy. And what that is saying is how do we justify the goodness of God how do we justify the love of God? How do we vindicate God, if you will, um, when, when um, in view of the existence of evil? How can a good God not only let these evil things happen, but command them to happen? These... Huh? Are they really evil? Of course they're not. But that's the, the question, the, the ethical issue is, how, how come, why doesn't God just, you know, why doesn't God just kill the devil? You know, why didn't he just do, why was, how is God good and just and he doesn't get rid of evil? It's sort of the question. I'm asking it in kind of the wrong way. It's unworthy of God to sanction and order the total destruction of these Canaanites. Some of them are innocent people. That's good. I'm trying. Innocent people, right? What about the innocent people who never hear the gospel? No, if they're innocent, they're going to 
Huh? They're, what? If you're innocent, don't go to heaven. Okay, there you go. There are no innocent people. Yes. Even if they don't hear the gospel, they've rejected God's natural revelation, right? His general revelation. But these are some evil, evil people. Um, It's not, you know, it's like, (laughs) did God harden Pharaoh's heart or did Pharaoh harden Pharaoh's heart? Yes. Yeah, there you go. More lost in the translation. Yes. If you go to the scriptures, I was—I remember the first time I searched that out, I was hoping that first Pharaoh hardened his heart, but God's the first one to said that, that it said he hardened his heart, but Pharaoh was a grown man. He had rejected God long before any of that happened, right? And he had hardened his own heart in rejecting God and worshiping whoever it was. The Egyptians, I think, were... The sun worshipers as much as anything. Um, yeah, let me read you Deuteronomy 20. This is 16 and 17. On um, Answering the question, or, or at least we're trying to answer, how could a holy and loving God demand this of his people? Well, here's Deuteronomy 20, 16 and 17. Moses' sermons at the end. But in these cities of these people, that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded. So, I think Charlie is the one that said it, but all of you were thinking it if you didn't say it. God has absolute sovereign right to do with us what he desires. Um, To exercise his power in any way. That's what Paul said to the Athenians. Made from one man every nation. He's determined their allotted periods, their boundaries, uh, and of their dwelling places. So his desire, his pleasure, his will is for Israel to inherit Canaan. Right? Okay. Um, the Canaanites weren't innocent. Uh, they weren't peaceful. They weren't righteous. They were not undeserving of God's justice. Uh, God told Abraham... Genesis 15, 16, that his descendants wouldn't inherit Canaan until the fourth generation because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Told that to Abraham. Since Abraham, uh, the Canaanites, the Amorites, all of these Ike people have been storing up wrath, rejecting God more and more continually. Uh, somebody talked about bestiality. They, Deuter, uh, Leviticus 18, if you want to turn there, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 18, I'm not going to read it all, but here's a list of their sins that God did. Child sacrifice, incest, adultery, temple prostitution, uh, and many other abominations. So God's justice comes against them because they rejected him through their natural law. Uh, Paul writes to the Romans, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath. 
when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. But no, but but from Abraham, we're down the road to Joshua's day. God's been very patient. He's been very tolerant of these people in their heinousness of sin. Allowing time to repent. But when their sins reach a limit, he brings judgment. He uses Abraham's descendants now to bring judgment upon these people. Uh, Back to Romans chapter 2. Do you presume on the riches and kindness and forbearance, riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Isn't that sort of how even we are, where um, God is patient with us, and sometimes we take his patience and kindness as he's not so angry with what it is that we're doing that is sinful. Judgment doesn't come immediately, and he's giving time to repent, and we take it as he's not so bothered so much with us. Presuming upon his grace. That's, so God uses a not so righteous Israel to bring judgment as the instrument of his judgment on a people who persistently delighted in their sin. Uh-huh. And then we turn around and we, we call them God's chosen people. It had nothing to do with their righteousness. Mm-hmm. It's because he chose, he made a decision that that would be the vessel, the river, the however you want to describe it, for him to do his work. Yes. So in a way, they got lucky, kind of. I mean, they <laughs> happened to be the chosen. They are the chosen. They're the chosen. But their time will run out, right? Their time will run out. Uh, When their sins reach a limit, these Canaanites in Jericho are going to be destroyed. When Israel's sin runs its limits, they'll be taken away too. Whether it be to Assyria or to Babylon. Uh, But they are God's chosen people by covenant. Uh, so, uh, God uses pagan nations to punish his own people, right? Assyria, the, the, the uh, Chaldeans, the uh, uh, Babylonians, huh? Rome, yes. Why shouldn't, if he uses pagan people to judge his people, why not use his people to judge pagans? Yeah. Um, so, he uses secondary causes. We remember our confession, God ordains whatever comes to pass, right? But he's not the author of evil. He uses second, secondary causes. He uses means to accomplish his purposes, and he doesn't violate anyone's will. He may change our will, but he doesn't force us to do anything against our will. We always exercising our will. Uh, So the band serves the purpose of God. He's protecting his own people because we read the list of, uh, in in Deuteronomy 20, uh, these people, he talks about devoting them to uh, complete destruction 
uh, and he says, here's why. So that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, and so you sin against the Lord your God. He's protecting his people by having them go in and wipe out every man, woman, child, and the animals and everything. He's protecting his people because they are worshiping false gods. Does this stop Israel from worshiping false gods? There's a reason why. Their hearts aren't right. They don't complete the conquest. They don't follow God's law, God's commands to wipe them all out. They'll spare some of them at times. We'll see. They'll not complete the conquest. And therefore, they're prone, they fall into idolatry over and over and over again. Um, but they're not any worse than us. <laughs> right? Yes. In Revelation 18, which, okay, yes. What year is that? What year is that? What year does that happen? <laughs> okay, so back to the text in verse eight, uh, 20, or no, verse 18, we haven't really covered. Uh, you keep for yourselves the things devoted to just... Uh, you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction. And then verse 19, take all the silver and go all the precious metal stuff and uh, keep it for artifacts for the uh, uh, vessels for the uh, tabernacle and eventually probably for the temple. But be sure you don't take anything out of Jericho. All right? The point's made, right? Chapter 7's coming up. Um, so verse 20, now we can take up, and the people shouted. That's from 16. Joshua says shout. The people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, ox and sheep and donkey, almost exactly the same language of 1 Samuel, where Saul is told to do this, with the edge of the sword. But the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua, to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, go to the prostitute's house, bring out from there a woman, and all who belonged to her, as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in. So Rahab saved the two young men's lives. Now the two young men go in and save Rahab and her family's life and bring them out. Uh, verse 24, they burned the city with fire and everything in it, only the silver and gold, the vessels of bronze and iron, they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. By the way, above the last sentence in 23, they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. What's the significance of outside the camp? 
the unclean. Yes, they were Gentiles. They were unclean outside the camp. Uh, So the two original spies who were saved by Rahab now save Rahab, put them outside the camp where the lepers would be, right? Those with leprosy are outside the camp. Uh, Outside this phrase, outside the camp, the... uh, uh, unclean parts of sacrificial animals were outside the camp. Uh, Jesus suffered outside the gate, right? The scapegoat, yes. The bodies of those this is Hebrews 13, the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the camp in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach. See, he was accursed because he hung on the tree, right? So he's outside the camp. Uh, And then Jericho is devoted to destruction. Uh, Rahab, by the way, if you don't believe this, Joshua, or the writer of Joshua says, there in uh, verse 25, in the middle, well, let's read all of 25. Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua, saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers from Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. If you don't believe this story that I'm telling you, just go ask Rahab. Uh, she's... In the people. She wasn't outside the camp forever. She's now within Israel. Verse 26 Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds the city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation. At the cost of his youngest son shall he set up the gates. And in 1 Kings 16, in his days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his first son, and he set up the gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. Don't rebuild Jericho. If you do, you're going to lose your firstborn and your secondborn. Hiel either didn't pay attention or didn't know, but he lost his firstborn and his second. And so the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. Joshua, who walked with him, Joshua received his favor. Of course, the fame of the Lord, who had done the work through Joshua. But Joshua is exalted. He is exalted earlier uh, in the eyes of the people, so that they might know that they had a leader just like Moses who would lead them in this conquest. So Joshua did not fight the battle of Jericho. God fought the battle of Jericho. Israel was faithful to the commands of God in the battle of Jericho. Uh, and he works in strange ways, doesn't he? I mean, God works in mysterious ways. We know the hymn. Uh, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, says the Lord. And then God's grace is present in the midst of this severe judgment upon Jericho as Rahab and her family 
according to the promise of God, the, the uh, oath sworn by God's spies that went in, God's grace was present and mercy to them. So, Jericho has fallen. Yes. Uh, what was the uh, scripture reference for outside the camp? Was that in Hebrews? 13. Hebrews 13, 20, is it 13, 11 through 13? City, one down, many to go. The Lord is faithful to his promises. Father, we thank you that we can trust. We thank you that you've given us, your people, hearts to trust. And Lord, we pray that you would uh, help us when we lack it, help us in our unbelief. We thank you for the faith you give us. Lord, we pray that you would uh, strengthen us, that we might trust in you. You're faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.